I just want to make this point that these kids are looking for status and the old systems that award status are no longer acceptable, right? We're going to junk them because they're connected with toxic masculinity or whatever. We replace them with new, a new set of uh, beliefs, elite beliefs. It, it, it's almost as though, have you noticed elites preserving themselves using this stuff? And that's what's so interesting is how many of the democratic elite are so sold out on this stuff, it's so difficult to extract it, right? You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Matt Osborne. He is a conflict historian. I'm a little intimidated to talk to Matt today because history was always my worst subject and I read his blog, it's way over my head. Um, but I know Matt through Twitter, you can find him at Polemology Fix. Um, and we've been in Twitter spaces before, we've talked about the gender issue. So I'm excited to see what he has to say today. Uh, I recently watched an interview um, that Matt did with Graham Linehan, which you can find on YouTube, in which they talk about um, the kind of religious myth of the magical trans child. I thought that was a really interesting conversation, so we might get into some of those topics today. I'm curious to see where it goes. Matt has a whole lot of knowledge that I do not, and um, yeah, we'll see where it goes. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for coming. Hi. Well, th well don't be intimidated because, you know, <laughs> if, if history was, was a bad topic for you, that's probably because people were very bad at teaching it. Um, and mostly people are bad at teaching it. That's generous. Um, I, I, Actually, I, let me, can I start there? Can I ask you, because my, um, I guess my, my thought until recently about why history was always my worst subject is that it feels like it's a lot of memorizing names and dates that feel very far removed from anything you can relate to. And I guess as, you know, I think if nobody ever tried to teach me history when I was young, uh, or at least not to teach me any of the stuff that was over my head, I feel like there's kind of a natural time in life when you become more interested in history because it makes more sense, because you have life experience, because you have social experience, you have more insight into human nature, you have more insight into conflict, and a lot of history is about conflict. What do you think about kind of the intersection of history and developmental psychology? When you say that we're teaching history wrong, are we teaching it in a developmentally inappropriate way? Because it seems hard for kids to grasp things that are as, as big and as far removed as, as what they learn in history. Well, yeah, all, all history has bias. Uh, you have to start from the principle that you're going to begin from a point of view, a perspective. Um, and when you have spent your career 
um, succeeding as you know a PhD academic historian, um, you're not ready to write for the perspective of someone in you know second grade. Um, that is one of the problems. Another problem is that we've actually given up on this. I don't know if you've noticed, but particularly in civics and civic history, um, there has been a deliberate pacification of the curriculum. Uh, when I was a child, uh, there were three years of government and civics in my K through 12 public education. Now um, it is, you know, the lucky child who has a semester. Um, and we did that because we were going to focus on the fundamentals of reading, writing, and arithmetic, and those scores went down. Um, maybe because uh, we lack, our young people lack the kind of base knowledge of themselves that, uh, you know, allows them to build identity. Oh, oh, are we missing some tools of identity in our culture? Do you think maybe just a little? Um, one of those is religion, right? And particularly if you're on the left, it's like, um, yes, there is still liberal Christianity. And you can see that, for example, in the pronoun ceremonies of the Unitarian Universalist congregations, right? That those are happening. Um, but that is kind of passe. Christianity is kind of passe to the left because Christian has been, and let's, let's face it, on, on the right also, there's a corresponding kind of, you know, wearing a little cross is now kind of a political symbol. It's become so it goes back and forth like that, and people have these heuristics built around religion now on the left. And so, what fills that hole, that gaping hole of religion? Because it's going to be filled with something. We're going to fill it with something, um, especially when we're you know trying to uh, develop a, a system of belief now around something that we can't see, right? Like a gender identity. Speaking of which, I have to ask you as a therapist, um, I, I'm aware, and, and, and this is beyond my domain. I mean, I'm intimidated by your domain of knowledge here. Um, what is this cognitive module that we have for identity, right? I know we have one, um, and it attaches to all these other heuristics, but what proof exists that there is one of these that is gender specific, that there's a gender identity heuristic has that been i don't know proven by science i mean i don't i don't believe in it <laughs> you know people who follow your work and my work anyone who's listening to this podcast understands that i i really challenge the idea of a gender identity now identity um you'll, you'll hear jordan peterson talk about this a lot identity is is something that we develop over time that we negotiate through experience and relationships we develop it over the course of our lifetime. We certainly don't have a fixed identity as a child. Now, there are certain temperamental traits that a person might be born with. I think I've noticed that anyone who's had children has had some life lessons around this because you notice that it's like it's like they pop out of the womb with a, a, a character, you know, and they can be raised in the same environment. But, you know, one kid's just really agreeable and curious and the other is disagreeable and doesn't care what anyone has to say and wants to figure it out for himself, you know? Um, so I think, you know, that definitely we, we 
emerge with some personality traits. Um, but, but the process of developing an identity is really a hard-won process that can only come through time and experience, uh, particularly relational experiences, but also, you know, experiences that we have in solitude, experiences that we have of, of struggle and accomplishment. Um, and it, it's right of people to want an identity. It's right of people to feel like something is missing if they don't have a strong sense of identity. But I, I think people are kind of going down these rabbit holes in search of the elusive identity. And they've been told there's this thing called a gender identity. And I think as you're pointing out, it, that idea closely mimics uh, many other kind of religious concepts, you know, these these abstract um, things that that can't be identified through science, that can't be identified through our senses, um, where we're asked to kind of believe in something transcendent. Um, so where, where were you going with that, Matt? Well, um, I asked because, you know, uh, we were dealing with the topic of gender identity. And, and so we have an identity heuristic. Okay, well, gender is part of that for some, all, what? I mean, you know, there, there's nothing that's been pinned down that is scientific that is real enough for me to believe it, right? So it joins the atheist pantheon of things I don't believe in. You, you asked about my uh, religious background earlier uh, before we started recording. Um, so let's just go ahead and, and attack this right quick. Uh, as a historian, I am a historical atheist, um, which means that I engage in an agnosticism uh, of religious belief, total agnosticism. Uh, and for example, uh, when I am examining, let's say, uh, early Islam, uh, that history is going to be something uh, that, um, uh, and I, I'm kind of losing track of where I'm going with this, but uh, I, I am going to be uh, using um, a heuristic of believing that the person of the past believed the religion themselves, right? Muhammad really believed in what he was saying. I accept that belief that he believes that. Doesn't matter what I think about it. Um, but believing that explains more about history than disbelieving that. Right? Believing something else is less helpful as a heuristic for understanding that bit of history. Um, so when I talk about religious history and I talk about the American religious tradition and how it impacts on the formation of these kinds of sort of, well, let's call them pseudo-religious heuristics of transgenderism. Um, I'm referring to a long period of development and the way that this sort of construction of an esoteric child is, um, it's not an immediate thing, but it's something among us, right? We have an esoteric sense of the child in the first place. It's innocent, and therefore that's magic, right? And the magic is what we're trying to preserve about that child. We save the trans child, and we save ourselves by doing so. It's a salvific narrative, isn't it? So yes, it's replacing all of these sort of holes for people, filling all those holes, uh, replacing what was removed. Um, anyway, uh, you, you seem uh, maybe a little 
more aware now of just how hard it is for me to articulate things in person. Um, it is much easier for me but to there's write. There's a couple of directions. Well, hey, let you've given plenty for me to go off of right there. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of directions, right? So one is I'm curious about the spiritual need. Mm -hmm. um, and the other is you, you, this thing you said at, at the end there about this, this idea that if we can save the trans child and we can save ourselves, that there's something magical, transcendent, pure, and that, that longing to protect and honor the sacred. I am really curious about that, but I want to back up a second because you see how there is this kind of void that religion fills for people, and yet you don't have a religion yourself. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, thinking about how we kind of co-evolved with religion. We've always had some kind of religious or spiritual um, side to us as human beings, and it's taken so many different forms and different cultures. But how does someone who's highly rational, such as yourself, who, you know, scientifically minded and you don't believe in any particular religion, do you notice that it leaves a void? And what are your thoughts on that? Because it seems like you're kind of observing that in secular modern liberal society where people reject religion, that there is that hole for some people, right? And, and that that gender ideology is one of those many things that can kind of come rushing in to fill that void. And do you see that there's a religious void? Do you relate to that personally? And how do you see that manifesting in others? Well, um, um, I like to say that I was saved by the spirit of rock and roll um, because I had the epiphany that led to my atheism in a mosh pit. Um, I was headbanging and I realized that I was having a religious experience and it was stronger than any actual in church or temple religious experience I'd ever experienced. And I realized, oh, wow, that's what this is. Um, and so uh, if I have a church, it's rock and roll. But um, yes, it is difficult even being able to observe that, I still find myself, you know, fulfilling heuristics, right? Russia attacks Ukraine. I kind of find myself falling into a heuristic, right? I have to analyze it um, and I have to adjust for it. Um, so, so, yeah, it, 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 it's something that you have to be able to observe in yourself and you can't always observe it in yourself. That's, that's the problem is that eventually you're going to uh, have your cognition it is going to be slower than your intuition, uh, and you're going to spend all of your energy making excuses for the intuition. That's what the cognition is going to be doing, rather than you know adjusting your beliefs. Um, so you have to be open to the new information. I mean, look at COVID, right? COVID hits at first. I'm like, mask up, you know, um, social distancing because. Uh, I'm just as terrified as anybody else. This is a disease heuristic, right? So what do we do? We, we respond to that. But now the science has changed, right? And so who's left pushing that disease heuristic? It's a group of people actually that gain status in social media, right? Um, that they found new status 
it's almost as if these heuristics become used for status, right? So when you fill one of these holes, oh, there's status involved. I don't know if you've noticed, but teenagers, for instance, are just obsessed with status. Um, the testosterone hits the boys and oh boy, they're uh, suddenly all about knowing, keenly aware of their status in the room. And it takes us 1 25th of a second to size each other up doing the monkey dance. Um, it, you, you may have observed the monkey dance at some point in your life when two boys, and I am stressing two males, um, are squaring off uh, before their forebrains have developed, right? Um, they haven't developed the cognitive powers to sort of manipulate or get what they want out of the world without, you know, just lashing out. Um, so risk-taking is a behavior of that young man, right? So these heuristics are working themselves out in us all the time, and they in shape everything about human society all around us. And here we go, we're messing, we're messing with these heuristics, right? We're, we're going to say, no, your heuristic of knowing what a man is when you are alone in the shower at the YMCA, as Julie Jamin was, right? Um, and you hear a man's voice, that's a heuristic. And we're supposed to just disobey this heuristic. How hard is it, is it to turn off a heuristic? Your therapist, tell me, is that even healthy to turn off a heuristic? Well, let's, so let's define heuristics for those who aren't familiar. Um, heuristics is in the title of, I believe, episode 18 of my podcast um, with Gurinder Bogle. Mm -hmm. um, heuristics, uh, hubis, hubris, heuristics, and human error. So my understanding of the term heuristics is basically mental shortcuts. How would you define yes. it, Matt? Yes, that's what I would say. It, it is, it is the instant decision, the instinctive decision, right? And then there's a cognitive process that takes much longer, as I was saying. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, this is happening all the time all around us. And so that was a very interesting interview you had with me, by the way. Uh, and that's what got me thinking about a lot of things. Thank you. But um, you know, you want to go on about um, the gender stuff. I just want to make this point that these kids are looking for status and the old systems that award status are no longer acceptable, right? We're going to junk them because they're connected with toxic masculinity or whatever. Um, so uh, we replace them with new, a new set of uh, beliefs, elite beliefs. It's almost as though, have you noticed elites preserving themselves using this stuff? Um, and that's what's so interesting is how many of the democratic elite are so sold out on this stuff, it's so difficult to extract it, right? It's so deep already. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, Look no further, I have just the thing for you. 
And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. You bring up a, a lot, a lot to, I, I feel like we could explore any any one of these branches. So you're talking about the adolescent need for status, mm-hmm. right? Adolescence is definitely a time that you're keenly aware of status and where you are in the various social hierarchies, um, the forms of competition being more overt between males, more covert between females. Um, and, and you... But you you talked about being saved by rock and roll. I know that was a few minutes ago, but um, you described this headbanging in a mosh pit. And what I picked up on when you described that was like the sense of transcendent unity. Yes. And I think that's one of those kind of key elements of the religious experience. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, as modern as the rock and roll mosh pit is, um, you know, it it shares many things in common with things we've been doing for tens of thousands of years, right? The drumming and singing and chanting, dancing, stomping together, um, singing in unison, marching in unison, moving in unison. Um, And uh, Kelly McGonigal talks about this in The Joy of Movement. And I remember there was a time, um, because I'm a very spiritually oriented Mm -hmm. person myself, but uh, without any particular religion. I was actually brought up Unitarian Universalist, but in a more atheist kind of agnostic way. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, there was a time in my life where I was deeply interested in Hinduism and my favorite part, uh, of it was the music and, and the ritual as well. And, uh, the types of music that I participated in involved call and response chanting as well as very kind of rhythmic hypnotic drumming and it when i was doing that on a regular basis it was like a a weekly reset for my nervous system i can't fully describe it but when i especially when i was in the drumming role um where you know you go you go you have to go into a certain state of mind when you're drumming and each hand is doing a different rhythm and you're chanting words in a foreign language there's no room in your mind for anything else but yes. keeping the beat, right? And and it was such a powerful form of meditation because it I completely cleared my mind of anything else for a couple of hours. Um, you know, even if you don't believe in in the power of anything else that those rituals were about. Um, so I remember that transcendent unity, um, and I remember the the kind of religious experience. And it's something that I miss, you know. And I, I can't. I just feel like I can't 
connect to Hinduism ultimately because it's not my culture. I can't engage in those practices in the same way that I could if I was born into it. Um, but but I feel like there's kind of that that void, you know, and there's something to kind of keeping time with the rest of your society, having rituals, holidays, the Sabbath, um, you know, opening and closing prayers, blessing before meals. There's so many um, ways in which I think as humans, we kind of evolved to ritualize things and to yes. have some kind of shared meaning. So, I mean, there's just so many needs that religion fulfills. And I love that you, even as a staunch atheist, were able to kind of describe how a musical experience that had nothing to do with religion still gave you that sense of transcendent unity. I think people seem to be healthiest and happiest when they have that in their lives in some form. And it seems like what's kind of dangerous, though, about gender ideology and the things you and I are concerned about is that there are certain religious needs being fulfilled without any recognition that it's an actual religion and without any kind of vigilance around the more cultish aspects of that religious nature. And then it's like, well, where's the sense of transcendent unity and where's the grace and forgiveness and peace and wisdom and guidance and, all, you know, the positives that we get out of religion mm -hmm. at our best? Where are those? All the wrath. None of this, you know, um, of mercy. Yes. Um, exactly. Mm. Uh, and, and I would I would I would I would say um, uh, that, that there was a lot there, but um, uh, we're dealing with um, a, a system of belief that because it is magical, it allows in some flexibility, right? You can never quite pin it down, right? Once you believe that angels can stand on the heads of pins, then you can argue about how many angels get to stand on the head of the pin. Is the gender identity fluid? Does it fluctuate or is it fixed? And and therefore, you know, the body has to be designed around it, which is true. Um, the incoherence is um, sort of uh, because it's just built right in. Uh, it, it leaves actually a spiritual space. Now, I'll, I'll just tell you long term, speaking as a historian, that um, my, my fear is that the thing will metastasize as a religion and moreover as a strict religion, because strict religions, uh, of course, um, have greater control of their adherents. Um, so I think that we will end up with something that is at once easier to identify, right? But also harder to kill, so to speak. Um, mm. As to your point about moving together, I'm going to turn you on to a historian. He's a very good historian. His, his writing is absolutely crystal clear. You'll love it. His name is William H. McNeil. He was a Harvard historian, and he wrote a book called Keeping Together in Time. And he didn't even have the, you know, scientific background to explain it. And there's no history, really, to explain it, except to just find in history where men march together and, and you know, sing together. And, and that seems to be something that builds this esprit de corps, as the French call it, this morale, this thing that ties men together and makes them fight together and risk death together. Um, you know, um, and what it turns out to be is oxytocin. When you are in a group of people making music, call and response chants, drumming, 
circles, um, whatever it is you do, um, you will be uh, reenacting something ancient in humans that when we move together and make music together and have rhythm together, um, it feels so good. Um, I had actually the initial breakthrough in basic training. There is a moment, you know, everybody's like nine pins knocked over for the first 48, 72 hours of basic training. Everybody's just reduced to nothing. And then there is a magic moment. You're marching back from the chow hall and everybody is in time singing Airborne Ranger. It's magic. It's a unit now. Anyway, uh, so, you know, now, now that we've described that, um, you know, you can apply what I just told you to the whole question of belonging, right? These kids have no structures um, or the structures have been leveled to the point that they're meaningless. Um, and so, you know, a lot of them, like football, is deprecated, right? Football has become a right-wing sport. I don't know if, you've, if you're aware of that. Um, and so on. And, and um, yeah, uh, well, you know, anything that has values of punctuality, I guess. Um, you, you know, uh, so, yeah, uh, we can be talking all day about how um, it fills these gaps in sort of the liberal side of things. But think about uh, for just a minute uh, how you go back to the 19th century image of the uh, circuit preacher, the tent revival preacher, okay, with the patent medicine show. Um, and I'm not sure if you've ever looked into patent medicine. I, I, I checked it out a little bit. Um, it's one of those historiographical areas I want to look into as part of all this gender stuff. You have the snake oil salesman, right? And it's always packaged with religion. I mean, think about how many um, sort of, uh, like, uh, uh, Peter Popoff, I think, you know, uh, Miracle Spring Water, he sells, and also, you know, um, uh, nutritional supplement pills or something like that. You know, it, it, this is like a thing. Nature, be natural with my supplements and pay me money. And it's, of course, woo. Um, but it's an old kind of scam in America. And it's been attached with to, to religion for a very long time. So that will always be there. And that's what we're dealing with, right? Okay, tell, kind tell of me a little bit about the history. About the history. And and I'm a little bit woo myself and I, I love all things natural, but I also am uh I harbor some animosity towards snake oil cures like um homeopathy, for instance. It's like, well, homeopathy is one hundred percent placebo effect. Why not use the placebo effect as a, an additional gain to go along with something that actually has some active ingredient in it, you know, <laughs> like right. whether right. that's, you know, like, um, so, you know, you and I might differ in, in our, our tastes and tolerances for the new age and the woo, but I, let's hear it. I mean, you say that this has a deep history. Tell us more. Well, um, let's go back to Rousseau, because he's really the guy who starts it. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he, he comes up with this idea of the child as uh, a tabula rasa, right? A blank slate. Now, you may be familiar 
um, with uh, Steven Pinker's book, The Blank Slate, from a few years ago, um, which pretty much demolished this idea. But still, it's so popular in the culture, right? It's almost, it's like a heuristic that we're stuck with. Um, kind of the opposite uh, of what I was saying earlier about how kids pop out of the womb with a certain degree of personality. <laughs> right. Uh, see, we know that kids come out that way. They're going to have a certain amount of nature. And then on top of that is layered the nurture. We, we, we had understood that for a minute, a hot minute. Uh, but now uh, we have sort of deranged everything around this idea, this divorce of, I don't know. Um, but if you go back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he is the person who constructed an esoteric idea of the child as the tabula rasa. That, that is programmable child that they've already got all the knowledge they need inside them and if we just you know gently lead them down the path to rationality they'll be perfect citizens rousseau was wrong about a lot of things um as a conflict historian uh, there are a couple of things where i just shake my head very much with rousseau and this is one of them um kids uh, don't come out completely formed. They come out with sort of tendencies that have to be channeled. And the ways in which we have channeled those throughout human history uh, can be seen on cave paintings, right? Rituals, like you're talking about, that bond communities together, not just the whole community of men and women and children, right? But then rituals that bond men, that bond women, that, um, you know, allow a sort of a uh, cohort within a cohort effect to take place. And these structures of society uh, can be you know, pretty strong and lasting. Uh, and they are what sort of provide shape to the society. Um, intersex relations, of course, are always foundational to a civilization. Um, and history is primarily about civilizations, right? But I do read into deep history. Um, and particularly uh, prehistoric conflict. Uh, and one of the things that you will note is that there's always a sex difference. For example, in any time that a skeleton is dug up that can be sexed and there's an arrow that is associated with the skeleton around the time of death, right? We find the arrowhead so we know this person was shot with an arrow. Um, it's male, a male skeleton. So this. This means that the arrow is primarily a male sociological device. Um, and so, um, you know, war itself has to be seen as a product of that divergent evolution like I was talking about. But now we're not supposed to teach the kids about the divergent biological evolution of male and female that underlies all of human conflict because they will get upset and complain. And I do know academics who are no longer speaking about conflict biology in the classroom because they are afraid. They are tenured academics who are terrified of angry little children that don't like to hear about reality. So you're talking about the reasons why we fight and uh, the relationship between conflict and sexual dimorphism. Let's dive into that. Yes. Um, well, uh, you, you've discerned in your own life, you've seen how boys go one way about turning on each other in violence, whereas girls, it's a much more subtle kind of thing. 
They're both working out hierarchies, but they're working out hierarchies differently. Um, and what happens is when you mix up those two hierarchies, you're in, immediately going to end up with a default hierarchy, right? So uh, here, herein lies, you know, the feminist dilemma, I guess, that biology produces men in, in, in the species uh, with bodies for conflict. Um, not that we do conflict all the time. That's, that's not us. We are actually less violent than, say, chimpanzees. Um, but still, we, we are built for conflict, and that's why we have advantages in things like combat sports, right? That's a foundation, uh, foundational to the whole idea of why women's sports exist. Now, we're supposed to believe nowadays that the reason why um, no woman has ever played in the NFL is because women just don't try hard enough, right? It's not because... Uh, women lack 15% minimum body mass differential, lower uh, uh, strength differential is worse in the upper body, right? Which is where you do all the, you know, grabbing and tackling work with your arms uh, and blocking. Um, what is the one position on the field, by the way, in the NFL where a, a female has even ever been touted uh, for uh, a, a perhaps maybe one day being a professional football player it's place kicker the one position on the field that has the least blocking tackling or running to do least amount of hitting in fact there are special rules that protect the place kicker from even accidental hits by other players huh it's the most protected position on the field um and so you know we, we see it around us all the time and we're not supposed to notice it but you saw in Syria, what happened? You take a generation of young men, right? You say you can't marry, right? You can't fulfill your imperatives um, until you are able to support a family, but also there are no jobs. Wh who fills that space, right? The Islamic State comes along and they say, oh, we'll, we'll give you a wife. We'll give you a house. We'll give you money. You, you can have status. Uh, it was interesting to discover, for example, that most jihadis who, you know, sort of self-actualize in the West, I'm going to go join the Islamic State, those guys, uh, they started out with in gangs, right? Substitute families of systems of belonging. We, we're always looking to belong. And it's the belonging in a group that causes us to in-group and out-group, right? And the the urge and this is a political point we can talk about too the urge that we have to outgroup someone is actually stronger than the urge to in-group and so in-grouping mm. is a slower process that requires more time and more trust building so say more about this that the urge to outgroup is stronger than the urge to in-group uh, allow me to introduce you to a concept uh, called negative partisanship okay Imagine there's a scale in front of you, and in the middle of the scale is zero. That's the null point, right? You, you don't know anything about this topic, this person. You have no opinion. Zero. And here is negative five. This is as bad as you can think of someone, and then plus five is as good as you can think of someone, okay? So here comes the candidate. Candidate blank. 
doesn't matter. Just imagine a candidate. Um, and I'm going to adjust the scale. I'm going to tell you something positive or negative about this candidate to slide the scale a little bit to see the effect that it has on your voting patterns. You understand this is a political science thing. It's been worked out in, you know, a, a academic and laboratory kind of settings. Um, so if I knock you down to, to, my, to, to negative two, knock you down two notches about that candidate, I say something really nasty about him and you're thinking, well, that, that doesn't sound too good. I lower your opinion by two notches uh, versus if, if I raise your opinion two notches, it turns out that the negative opinion actually has more voting predictive power. You are more likely to vote against a candidate you dislike than turn out for a candidate you like. And that is the problem uh, that always exists for any political movement built on, I'm going to use this terrible word, but inclusion, right? It's sort of a conundrum. In-grouping and out-grouping, right? But we're doing it all the time. And we see it, for example, um, with uh, this gender stuff. Uh, you know, J.K. Rowling tweets, and therefore she has to be put in the out-group. And we have to have a two minutes hate every day on pink news um, or whatever uh, because we're out-grouping her, right? Um, and, and, of course, there's a whole complex story about how we identify groups that that's a member of my group that's another member of my group that's someone from a different group that's like my group right and we're gauging our closeness to other people's ideas on again i'm going to use that word heuristics um uh which are built on in and out grouping and the out grouping is more powerful this intuitively lands is true for me. You know, the first few things that come up are thinking about our last few presidential elections here in the U.S. I think in both the 2016 and 2020 elections, I think most people I know voted against the person they hated more <laughs> rather mm -hmm. than for the person they liked more. And it also makes me think about, uh, I believe it's called social exchange theory in psychology um, and mm -hmm. generally the negativity bias. You know, the fact that, for example, in a relationship, if you want a romantic relationship to survive long term, uh, you have to, the, the ratio of positive to negative experiences in that relationship, the, the positives have to greatly outweigh the negatives. Um, I believe it was originally considered four to one or five to one ratio was necessary in social exchange theory. And then I, I believe I read a correction somewhere that said, actually, it's more like 20 to one. It's more like yeah. you need to have a four to one ratio of positive to negative during conflict, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, in a healthy relationship, I can, I can conceive that because, you know, I think in healthy conflict between loving partners, you can ex you know, you can say, well, I see where you're coming from and I, you know, I love that you care so much about the children, but here's why I disagree. You know, you still need the positive present even during conflict. But in general, um, negativity stands out in our mind more. It makes more of an impression and, and it takes more work to counterbalance it. Um, so, yeah, intuitively what you're describing about negative partisanship and the urge to out, out group makes sense to me.
Well, there you are. So, so we've we found an intersection of our specialities, I guess. Um, I, I do want to tell you. Um, do you know the word historiography? Are you familiar with that word? Okay. No. I, this is this is going to unravel a lot for you. I, I'm just going to um, go ahead and and uh, uh, help you maybe improve your relationship with history. Historiography is the history of the historians. Okay, so. For example, um, Hegel, uh, the philosopher historian of the 19th century, uh, looks at religion and sees it's sort of like the roots of culture. And he describes that and he's kind of coming up with some weird ideas about how to do history. Not all right, but he notices that it's part of uh, our history of social formation, right? And so that sparks a whole history of historians looking at history uh, along those lines of there's something going on here, something mechanistic. One of them being, for example, Karl Marx. You probably heard something about Karl Marx. Um, the point is that all ideas have histories. And history is really a history of ideas. Um, furthermore, the reason why we don't teach it properly is because we're not really trying to tell you a story, right? A story that will resonate with you. We're trying uh, too often in history to get you to remember the dates, right, and names, which would be nice if we just provide you a nice list of those and just then tell you the story. And then you can remember the story on the framework of what's written down. You know, that I think that we do actually teach history very badly, but that's beyond sort of the scope of gender. And I'm not uh, an educational theorist, unfortunately. I'm just a guy who's interested in things go boom. So earlier you, um, I wrote down this phrase, save the child, save ourselves. It, it came up when you were talking about kind of the, the mythical nature of the way that people who are caught up in gender ideology are thinking about this, um, magical mythical creature called the trans child and and you described this very clearly with graham linehan but i want to go into this further because I, I think it's very astute and it's an interesting way of framing it you know we do have this longing to believe in something yes. and every parent wants to believe that their child is special i think the the um the archetype of the child or, or the many possible archetypes of, of different kind of the child archetypes that exist, um, they can symbolize many things for us. Innocence, purity, connection to God or something higher, um, our best selves, infinite potential, being unmarred by the evils of the world. Um, and, and the longing to protect, or as you say, to save the child, um, like you say, it, it can represent the idea of saving a part of ourselves, of salvaging some innocent, precious part of us that remains untouched by the world. I, I want to yes. dig into the symbolism more. Let me, let me pick up there, because I got sidetracked. It just kind of, yeah, the, to, to that point, is that um, this esoteric child idea in the American culture has come to us in the first 21st century, I'll just skip forward, um, you have this sort of new age construction, right? And it's the sort of granola munching whole earth catalog hippie mom 
um, who is sort of constructing something called an indigo child. Now, uh, that's what I was talking to Graham Linehan about. And that's an example of one of these sort of esoteric child constructions that comes along in history from time to time and appears as a sort of a fleeting thing. Uh, the indigo child is a good example uh, for me to talk about because actually I was told uh, at the age of 15 that I was an indigo child. And, and that was very strange. And it's one of those waypoints on my uh, way to, you know, sort of unpacking, untangling all of religion or whatnot. But during the harmonic convergence, I had a woman who claimed to be Native American tell me, I can see your aura, you're an indigo child. And I said, what is that? Um, by the 1980s, this idea had gathered a, enough steam that there are books about it, right? And then during the 1990s, you have uh, people who are making money off a sort of, um, I'll, I'll call it kind of new age concert tour of doing like channeling um, ancient spirits and, and seeing auras and talking about indigo children. The indigo children, you see, are the special new children that have the indigo colored auras. Um, this woman, uh, Nancy Ann Tapp, said, I see these children. I've never seen them before. I I'm doing my work with children, and now I see children with these purple indigo auras. They're new in the world, and they're here to save us all. Um, and, uh, you know, that's sort of how it works, is the idea that we're we save them to save us. Think about that for one second in terms of popular culture. How many times have you seen that used, right? Like, um, Sarah Connor and the Terminator is a variation on this idea. Um, Peter Pan is an esoteric child, right? So these sort of cultural constructions are built all around us and we don't even think about them. And then they come together in this one particular instance in this very bizarre way. Uh, and one of these indigo children, you can watch an interview I think it's 2009, where he was interviewed by Oprah. And excuse me, I'm going to say it, but she is one of the great woo peddlers uh, of our age. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, she, she had this child on, and um, he uh, was a published poet at the age of nine, right? So child prodigy. Indigo child, obviously. Um, and when you watch the interview uh, with Oprah, you will see the manipulation just totally clear. Um, she asks him, for example, do you ever hear voices? Uh, do, 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 do the bad um, thoughts or whatever, do, uh, do you ever hear these voices? And he says, sometimes, uh, but not right now, because he doesn't want to be interrogated right now. Right? And she, of course, immediately gives him an out. Oprah's, well, of course, we have good vibrations in here. And um, of course, yes, 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 you have very good vibrations in here, he says. So you see how there's sort of cultic behaviors going on. Isn't it weird how we fall into these patterns? And it's not that, you know, Oprah set out, I'm going to, you know, start a religion around an indigo child or something. But, you know, she wanted to believe in this esoteric child. Um, and so she sort of built the belief right in front of us on national television. Um, uh, unfortunately, I, I do want to make clear that the child in question, he did tragically die of uh, childhood illness. Um, very, very tragic. But the point being that this was a thing in the culture for a minute. 
And whereas it started out kind of as this magic, you know, new age kind of thing, by the first decade of the 20th century, it subsumed something else completely. It was the problem child of the classroom. Remember ADD? Remember ADHD? Remember how suddenly every child had to be medicalized because they couldn't sit still, right? And so what this ends up becoming is the indigo child becomes a kind of reaction against the medicalization. My child does not have a problem. My child is an indigo child. And if you read um, the description of what an indigo child is supposed to be. Um, let me just give you some quick examples here uh, so that you can see what I'm talking about. Um, they come into the world with a feeling of royalty and often act like it. I mean, have you ever known a child that just seemed to feel like they were royalty? Right? You know, that's, that's a thing that happens. Um, they, they have a feeling of deserving to be here and a surprise when others don't share that. I don't know any child who that describes. No, that's a new thing in the world. Um, uh, they see better ways of doing things, uh, which makes them seem like system busters and nonconformers. Um, you know, oh, okay, so now all nonconformity gets rolled up under uh, the rubric. Um, and oh yeah, guilt discipline doesn't work on them. I, have you known kids that guilt discipline really, really works on them? I, I, well, I I'm really appreciate sure you going over this with me, well. Matt, because this is a breakthrough for me. Now I understand that my obstinate eight-year-old stepson is actually just an indigo child, and I've been approaching this all wrong. Or, or he could be a crystal child, you see, because that's mm. the new thing. Indigo is very, hmm, that's second wave feminism. This Crystal children are the new thing, see? Mm. So, you know, you want to have that checked by a professional, a professional psychic oh, okay. will need to help you a figure that out. A professional aura yeah. reader? Okay. Yes. <laughs> but I, I, I want to explore this from a psychological lens here because mm -hmm. this idea that the, of the, the children who were here to save us all, that's a, something yes. you said, right? The idea that these children are here to save us now, I, I just want to explore that from a developmental psychology standpoint, right? Or, Please you know, and, and combine that with what you were just saying about the description of this magical indigo child as um, being like royalty, right? There's, this sets up a young person for the projections of the unfulfilled yearnings, the unfulfilled narcissistic yearnings of the parent or the adult that's idealizing them, right? So we all have a certain degree of narcissism. Only in rare cases does that reach, you know, the level of being clinically pathological as in narcissistic personality disorder or the narcissistic traits that are a part of something like histrionic or borderline or antisocial personality disorder. But we all have narcissism. And, uh, you know, part of the the job of child rearing is is to help instill healthy narcissism in the proper doses, right? We all need to be able to feel proud of ourselves and have have the confidence to take on things that are challenging and scary for us, and to integrate that into a healthy ego that's well adjusted. Um, now, there are many ways it could go wrong, right? And when you think about pathological narcissism, the image that comes to most people's mind is the image of the grandiose narcissist, the one who walks around like a proud peacock 
acting boldly like he knows he's better than everyone else. But we also have the covert narcissist. The covert narcissist can come across as very meek on the surface and yet be, you know, abhorrent, just terrible to to the people he treats behind closed doors, those closest to him, you know, and and can be extremely manipulative. Um, But there's also the um, sort of depressed, depleted version of narcissism, right? The imploding version of narcissism, the instead of I'm so wonderful and it's all about me, it's I'm so terrible and it's all about me. It's me, 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 I'm so bad, self-flagellation. And you become so obsessed and absorbed into how bad you are or how worthless you are that you're actually sucking all the oxygen out of the room in an imploding way rather than an exploding way, right? So, um, but then there's, you know, sub... Yeah, I mean, there are some people who are just... Yeah, there are some people who are just self-absorbed in a really negative way, and that's how their depression manifests, right? But, um, you know, that all of us have some degree of narcissism. Hopefully, it's integrated in a healthy way. And we also have narcissistic yearnings or narcissistic fantasies, right? The fantasies of grandeur, even if we never indulge them in our lives, right? So, you know, take your just your average guy who, you know, works a middle-class job and, you know, has an average body and an average home and an average family. And deep down, he, you know, he has this dream of being a rock star and he's had it since he was 13, you know, and, uh, or a basketball player or whatever, a millionaire, right? We all have this idealized self somewhere of who I could have been, right? If if someone had come along and recognized my talent or if only whatever, then I, I would be this grandiose version of myself. And I could have so been a this, contender. This kind of, yeah, exactly. Right, this, classic, this classic fantasy of who, of who I could have been who I could have been if I if I'd been dealt an easier hand, or if only someone had recognized my greatness, or if only I didn't get turned down unfairly for that promotion that I deserved, you know. Um, and it's it's often the case that part of the um, sort of symptoms, the behavioral issues manifesting in a child, uh, have to do with the unfulfilled yearnings of the parents. Um, and so when you describe this kind of, um, esoteric child who's here to save us, this child who's magical, this child who knows things that we don't know because we've been corrupted by the world, right? But the child is tuned into God. The child can hear angels. The child can see your aura. The child is here to bless you and save you. Whatever it is, you know, I wonder how much of that is this unfulfilled, um, yearning, uh, on the part of the parent, their own specialness, their grandiosity, their repressed narcissistic urges that, you know, I'm not so great or I never got recognized as being great, but my child is really something else. You know, my child is a gift from God. And, you know, whatever it is, it's it's like a part of the parent's own ego that's been split off and projected onto this child. Yes. And it's an enormous amount of pressure on the child. And, and you see, you know, people come to therapy. Now, I can't say that I've worked with a ton of patients who had that particular type of childhood where they were like, 
the savior who was the indigo child in particular. I, I don't think I've had a single client who ever told me that they were ca called an indigo child growing up, but I, I can't tell you how many people I have worked with who had something projected onto them. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's more normal than it's more the norm than the exception if you're coming to therapy to talk about your childhood that something was projected onto you and something was expected of you. Interesting. You were expected to solve Very an unsolvable problem. You were expected to save your parents' marriage. You were expected to cure your mother's depression, you know, whatever it was. And so what happens when you come into the world as a child knowing nothing? Yeah, sure, you have some inborn tendencies, but you you have the same needs as any child, you know, developmentally, like your your brain and body are still on the same course of the the maturation required of, of any child. Um, and you you need to learn how the world works. <laughs> you need to learn how to socialize. You need to learn how to take care of yourself. You need to learn skills. Um, you need to be protected and nurtured. Uh, you need all, all kinds of things. But instead of being seen as the helpless, ignorant, naive child that you are, um, the, you know, the, the child that needs to be socialized and, and nurtured, um, you're seen as a savior. You're seen as knowing something that those around you don't know, when actually the opposite is true. The, what's true is that the adults around you mm -hmm. know something you don't know. They know a whole lot of things you don't know, like, you know, how to wash your hands after you go to the bathroom and how you pay, how to pay your taxes and about a thousand other things you need to learn if you're going to make it to adulthood and be able to survive. So I'm thinking about the, the inordinate amount of pressure and the kind of role reversal that's put on this child um, and and then how the how the child psyche is going to compensate for that, right? What the ego does with that. And it's mm -hmm. actually a, a, a lonely and a scary place to be when that pressure is mm -hmm. on you to have the answers or to be special in some way. So I can imagine a child in that position at once kind of developing a narcissistic personality because they've been told that there's something so uniquely special about them. And at the same time, just feeling so ill-equipped to uh, handle life. Or feeling like the rules don't apply to you. Like, yeah, there are all of these just rules of, you know, nature and of how your particular society works and of how things get done. There, there are these rules that do, in fact, apply equally to everyone. But because the emphasis when you were growing up was put on how special you are and how you have things to teach adults rather than the other way around, then you kind of think that those rules don't apply to you or that they don't matter or you just expect things to magically appear before you, it seems like it would develop this kind of entitled um, attitude, but also at the same time, there's neglect there. So there's there's grandiosity. There's like a better than everyone else, but there's also a, like I'm missing something fundamental. So just exploring this, mm -hmm. this with you as we're going is, is making me think about you know, because I, I think the story of the indigo child really makes it easy to imagine this because it's a little further removed. But then I wonder what happens if mm -hmm. we apply that to the magical gender child. <laughs> As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. 
people often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Okay. Um, so, all right. Um, what, what we see, of course, in, in any kind of um, belief system is that uh, literal beliefs uh, become stronger over time than Gnostic ones. Right, Christianity is a good example of this historical process um, because the most fundamental, fundamentalist and literalist religions, uh, the strictest ones, I should say, um, are the ones, again, that, that uh, tend to keep us uh, inside the religion most, right? right? They're the most successful at keeping us converted to the religion. Um, for example, if you have to, um, you know, undergo as a man certain operations to become Jewish, well, then that takes a commitment, right? You, oh boy, you got you got to think about that for a minute. It's not something you can just oh sure that whatever. Um, whereas you know, a, 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 an immersion in water, a baptism, anyone can do that. It's kind of easy. Right. So low cost, low initial cost um, to become a convert to that religion. But still, it's asking you to believe literally in the risen Christ and so forth. Right. Because that's the most fervent mode of belief um, to believe that, oh, this is really just mystical. And it's, you know, you have to understand it's symbolic. Well, now you're actually losing enthusiasm uh, from the belief. So the, the most harsh religions are the most successful ones. Uh, and in that vein, you know, I worry that you're going to have a generation with a lot of kids who have had parents projecting this specialness onto them, and they're going to be in sort of trapped in a situation, right? Like, what do you do when you're the, the chosen golden child and you've been turned into a eunuch and you've been put on the, I don't know, the throne of the Holy Sepulchre or something. How do you get out of that? What's the exit strategy mm. from that? Um, 
So mm -hmm. I, I do worry that, in fact, what um, what the Martin Rothblatt's of the world were sort of uh, thinking when they, uh, you know, came up with the sort of design specs for their transgender movement, uh, say ten years ago. I'm sort of thinking that they they were actually thinking this way. If we make the kids permanently part of this um, uh, sort of cult that uh, they will be stuck there forever and, and we will exist as a class and that will allow us to you know do whatever we want as far as, um, you know, us grown men, we will have all the rights that have been established for us by Jazz Jennings, right? The sacrifice of Jazz Jennings is going to set all of us free, us adult men with AGP. Uh, there's a sense in which it works that way, right? Um, and uh, you can sort of see the structures. As I said earlier, um, one of the problems with a religion as it acknowledges itself as a religion, it becomes easy to say, okay, you know, you're a religion, keep it in church. But at the same time, it becomes e it harder to effectively make it go away. Um you know, snake handling churches are a thing not too far from where I live right here. Um, there, there's, you know, a very strange religion, but um, it, it can't really get shut down. You can't make people stop doing strange things if they want to. If they make it part of their beliefs, because we respect beliefs that much. And think about what we do with children and belief in America all the time, right? You, you get some couple that doesn't believe in modern medicine. Right. And I'm not talking about, you know, um, we, we take the child to the doctor and pray, which is always the best strategy. If you want to pray, go ahead and pray. Take, take the child to the doctor. But the, the parents who say, well, we don't believe in modern medicine, so we're just going to pray and use cold washcloths or whatever on the child. That's the only thing we're going to do. And the child dies. What what do we do? Do we throw the couple in prison? Actually, I've seen extensive trials for couples like that, um, and then I've seen verdicts set aside because we value uh, that freedom so much that we will let children die for it. So that's what we're operating in as a culture. All right, children are expendable to a degree. They always have been. The cult of Moloch. For instance, asks you uh, since you know your firstborn belongs to God, and that's literal, right? It's it's actually in the Bible. The firstborn belongs to God, and there was a literal form of this belief in the Near East, and it was more popular in uh, Carthage than in Israel. But you know there were people who believed in it and sacrificed firstborn children, male and female, because they thought it would make the rains come. Um, so, you know, the idea that children are just so precious, that's actually fairly new. I, I you know, we, we used to uh, have much larger families, uh, humans. By and large, we have larger families. And like in the Middle Ages, for example, women were expected to grow in their affections over time. They weren't expected to have an immediate bond with the baby because the chances were iffy that the baby would live. So. Their affection for their children grew as the children succeeded and didn't die and thrived. Um, and so our conceptions of parenthood have changed. Another thing that's changed, and here's a, a sort of long view historical perspective that you might find interesting. 
uh, is that we are a century past the tipping point now. A hundred years ago is when it was the 1920 census that for the first time showed more Americans living in cities than on farms. Um, during the time that most people were farmers, there wasn't any, you know, funny ideas going around about, you know, plants and animals that are non-binary, right? We weren't separated from nature that way. And to that matter, I'm still waiting to see what happens when the queer uh, academics take over the agriculture department. Okay, well, a lot of really curious ideas there. I, um, The one that I'm most struck with and, and kind, kind of still sitting with is you asked, like, how, how do you walk it back? How does this child, the, the Jazz Jennings, right, the one who's been sacrificed um, as this magical child that, that has been put on a pedestal, like, how, how do they confront reality? I do think it's going to be really difficult for the Jazz Jenningses of of the world, right? Because they've been told that there's something so uniquely special about them, that the whole world is here to learn from them rather than the other way around, and and then in the process they've they've been medically harmed, and it turns out what's so special about them they discover in adulthood is is that they have these special impairments, these special disabilities as a result of the iatrogenic harm. And and I think it's very it's very humbling and confronting to um you know go from being in such a lofty idealistic philosophical place to encountering just the realities of everything required of um everything required of being an adult, you know, just paying bills and and I think that there's this huge disconnect between um, the sort of false ego that's been developed as this idealized self and the day-to-day reality of what it is to try to function in the world as someone who has a body to take care of, a home to take care of, people they owe things to, you know, people they're responsible to. I also noticed that, and, and I think this this is something that I see a lot just through my practice as being a therapist. Um, there are a lot of people for whom their cognitive abilities are developed way beyond their physical abilities. And I see this a lot in therapy. I, I work with very intelligent people who could psychoanalyze themselves all day long. I mean, they sound like they, they're being their own therapist, you know, with, with their degree of self-awareness about what their personal issues are and how their family of origin affected them and so on. But they struggle with doing something very simple that they know they should do. You know, something as simple as going for a walk more often or getting ready for bed earlier or, you know, preparing healthier meals. The, the kind of basic building blocks of physical and mental well-being that we all have to figure out in order to make it very far into adulthood without our life falling apart. I think those things can be very hard for people because they, they're they in the body. You know, habits are of mm -hmm. the body. And the emotions that get in the way um, of following through on actions are in the heart and they move at a slower pace. You know, the body and the heart move at a slower pace than the intellect. Mm -hmm. And in an age of endless information, um, 
in an age that requires very little of people materially compared to, like you're saying, people who um, live in an agricultural society, you know, people who grow up waking up at 6 a.m. to feed the chickens and milk the cows. When you don't have that material experience of things and organisms depending on you taking action in order for you to survive and in order for other living beings to survive when you don't have that experience but you do have the experience of a lot of intellectual stimulation it creates what i see as being this mind body disconnect where there are people who are way more developed intellectually than they are emotionally or physically or in their ability to perform basic tasks so I worry about that for these magical gender children, right? That they've cultivated these very complex ideas. I mean, they're nonsense ideas, but you know, postmodernism is is full of very complex nonsense ideas that you have your your intellect has to go down all these rabbit holes to make it make sense, right? And they've constructed this false sense of self and this identity, right? And they've consumed so much information. And yet their body doesn't know how to get out of bed in the morning, prepare yourself a nutritious meal, clean your home, take a shower, get some exercise, go to work, fulfill what your employer expects of you, you know, <laughs> and clean yeah. up after yourself. And or like, it's going to be really hard to adjust. That's one reason I'm working on the book. I don't know if you know about the book I'm working on, but but for you and for our listeners, in case you don't know, I'm working on a book tentatively titled, uh, the working title is um, The Detransition Survival Guide. And this is one of, you know, probably a hundred topics that's going to have to come up is like, okay, so you've constructed a false self and a grandiose view of yourself in the world and in these lofty concepts of identity. And now you're discovering that you don't know how to put one foot in front of the other and you don't know who you are. Like what then? You know, first of all, we got to normalize that it's going to be hard. Look, look at ahead. Jazz Jennings, you know, uh, pe- people, you know, I still occasionally I'll, I'll encounter someone who's like, oh, they're not doing this to kids. And I'm like, you know, Jazz Jennings is a thing we can watch on television, right? You know, I, I, I reject the gaslighting. I saw what happened with Jazz Jennings. I watched it all go down. Um, and that is a perfect example. You now have someone who is 21 years old, who is shorter, heavier less accomplished, less healthy, um, less cognitively developed than all of their siblings, all three of their siblings. Um, and that's the kid, the one kid who's like that is the one that went on puberty blockade at 11, right? The experiment has been run, we watched. Um, and I keep uh, hitting on this, that this is the program that's supposed to make me accept the existence of the trans kid and and approve of the existence of the trans kid and and want to save the trans you know what i want to save jazz jennings from jeanette jennings right because like you're saying family dynamics inform a lot of this we have such smaller families now like i was talking about before that each child becomes so much more precious um that that's one sort of effect um, but also modernity has given us all these tools. You know, we, we used to have nannies. They were at least human beings who took care of the children, right? Um, and now we've got screens doing that. Uh, and it affects their development. No wonder they uh, arrive 
uh, to, you know, uh, being 21 years old and they're still not adults. We, we used to know better than this. We knew better than this in the Mesolithic. You know, you, um, you have to inculcate children in the values that form the community. Um, yeah, it, the wisdom of the ancients seems ever more wise the older I get, right? Um, and and I, I don't mean to, uh, you know, uh, to uh, sort of uh, hit all of uh, self-help uh, as just generalizing, you know, uh, disrespect to all of it. I'm not doing that. Um, I, I don't know if my comments earlier about Wu may have... Um, uh, have you on the defensive there? I actually wanted to ask you um, about uh, trauma and about detransition, because I, thank you for doing that work, by the way. I think it's great what you're doing. But I wanted to ask you about that in the context of um, mythology, um, particularly like, you know, I read Iron John when I was a young man, uh, Robert Bly, his book. And that, that was sort of formative. Um, and the idea that you have to experience some kind of wounding. You have to be struck down in your narcissism to learn, to, to be able to say, you know what, that was narcissistic of me and I shouldn't be that way. Um, I, I, I'm not, you know, saying that when you bring back corporal punishment or something stupid like that, I'm saying, isn't there a, a sense in which uh, trying to soften all the consequences is actually turning out fragile kids like that. Yeah, I mean, it's the job of the parents, the family, the home environment to prepare a kid for the world. Is there a sense in which we need trauma so that we don't turn out as monsters? Yeah. Well, adversity builds character. And the... The role of the parents is is definitely to protect the child, right? But also to give the child manageable, bite-sized, age-appropriate doses of the types of challenges that they will experience out in the world that doesn't care about them. You know, the home is a safe place where you're unconditionally loved by people who truly want what's best for you. You know, there's nobody who can love you more than your parents unless you have abusive, neglectful parents. But most people's parents, however imperfect they are, still love them a whole heck of a lot more than almost anybody ever will. And, you know, so it, it is the job of the parents not to make your children forever dependent on you, but to help them adapt to the world they're living in, which means that different practices are going to be best suited for different homes, depending on what is the culture and the day and age that the child's going to be emerging into, right? And and in a world mm -hmm. that's changing so fast, it's even hard for parents to know, you know, how do I adapt my child children not only to the, the age that we're living in, but the age that they're going to be living in with technologies that I can't even predict and problems and solutions that I don't even know about, right? So it's it's a tough job. It's children's Part, part of their developmental task really is to test where the boundaries lie, to try to figure out how things work through trial and error. Just like, you know, there's that developmental stage where your kids will put everything in their mouths, right? Like babies are just these walking, if they are walking or crawling hazards where if, if your attention turns away for like 10 seconds, they could die. I mean, it's amazing that humans have managed to stay alive for this long considering how, how babies are just wired to self-destruct. I mean, they're constantly taking risks, right? Um, and, 
you know, if you think about just how many things are choking hazards or suffocation mm-hmm. hazards or, you know, fall off the ledge hazards, you, you know what I'm talking about. So, um, but it's, it, it's a job of parents when babies are that young, you know, you try to protect them from a certain amount of things. You don't let them, you know, have access to anything they could choke on. But at the same time, you can't control them trying to put everything in their mouths. And out of everything they'll put in their mouths, you know, some of the bacteria that ends up in their mouth is going to strengthen their immune system, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's going to create a robust microbiome that knows how to fight off different pathogens. Um, And babies are going to learn what tastes good and what doesn't taste good. They're going to discover texture. There's, There's a certain amount of learning that comes through that trial and error. Um, there's a story that I'm reminded of, which is that um, when I was a baby growing up, there were olive trees in the neighborhood, and my mom would take me for walks, and I would always kind of reach. I would I wanted the olives that were on the ground, and it was a struggle for her to keep me from getting the olives off the ground and putting them in my mouth. And I don't know if you've ever tried olives straight off the tree; they're disgusting. <laughs> like you have to brine them for them to be yeah. palatable. Um, so olives straight off the tree are just super bitter, right? So my mom was mm-hmm. fighting and fighting and fighting and finally was just like, okay, fine, kid, help yourself, you know? And I put an olive in my mouth and it was disgusting and I reacted the way you do. Um, mm-hmm. I, I probably made some adorable faces. And, um, you know, I didn't eat olives again until I was like 15. <laughs> So, um, you know, what's the moral of the story? Like, you know, maybe I learned my lesson a bit too much because I I could have easily tried properly brined olives at a younger age. (laughs) Um, But but there's a certain amount of trial and error where you have these judgment calls to make about raising children of like, do I let them learn this the hard way? You know, there is a certain amount of learning through trial and error. And but the message that needs to go along with that is like, here at home as your parents, we're the ones who unconditionally love you. And we're not telling you these things or we're not enforcing these limits to be mean. We're not doing this because we don't care about you. We're doing this because we care about you. And this is just a little, you know, bite-sized sample of how the world works. And we want you to be successful in the world, not as it ideally should be. This isn't about what ought to be. This is about what is. And that's what evolution that's what evolution has been for all of history since long before humans evolved, right? It's just ever since we've had sexual reproduction. Well, maybe I don't know. Let's talk mm-hmm. more about mammals because I don't I don't know about non-mammalian species, but you know, for as long as parents have that's been involved enough. in the rearing of their children, it's it's not about what ought to be, it's about what is and how do you help your offspring adapt to the environment that is. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Families bond, and there, there's actually a chemistry to that, isn't there? Right? It's the oxytocin again, I believe. So, you know, we're sort of, we're chemically designed to uh, form these groups, to form families, to form societies, etc. So um, what, what is the in-group and out-group that we're building with transgenderism, right? We're, you know, 
the people on the out group, those are the ones who don't believe that trans women are women, right? They, they're not the literalists. We are the literalists about it. So it's an interesting point. Like, is that line going to get redrawn at some point? Is that going to be walked back? I, I don't know. I think it might have to. Um, uh, and, and speaking again as a historian, not trying to do you know predictive sort of. Uh, um, I'm, I'm not looking into the future here, but uh, just as a historian, I'm interested in how um, when uh, the sort of promises don't pan out, how uh, the the movements that are built up around the promises will change. The great disappointment I mentioned earlier. Uh, when we first started talking. 1844, a bunch of people believe Jesus is right about to come back. And they go out in the cornfield and they're waiting on the appointed day and it you know, rains a little. Um, <laughs> uh, and what comes out of that is Seventh-day Adventists. That, that's a religion that comes out of that. Um, I did All the way across that. the world. Yeah, there there are many religions. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses also claim 1844 as their origin story, right? Baha'i Faith also claims 1844 as its origin point. Uh, and what's going on is what this great international... What happened in 1844? What's happening is a great international foment, right? Um, in the United States at that time, for example, there are a lot of towns... Uh, in Ohio now that carry names like Medina, which is Medina, or you have Cairo, Missouri Cairo, right? All these Middle Eastern place names because there's sort of a, a fascination among Americans. They're reading about faraway places in these periodicals. And what's happening is that people are reading them to their families. One person who's a reader reads to the whole family, right? So people are fascinated by these faraway places and they name their new towns that they're founding after. Um, and in that foment, they're also having one of those revivals that happens periodically in American history. You know, we talked about the burn. Well, we didn't talk about it, but you probably remember talk in history, American history about the burned over district, which is where this revivals were coming so frequently through Western New York that, you know, like, Another revival, another revival, another revival that it, it was called the burned over district. So all this religious foment in America is one of the reasons why we as a society are so we stand out from other societies like ourselves. And that societies that have achieved our upper third level of per capita income in the world, that cohort of countries, we tend to drop below 50% religious participation when we hit that cohort, except for the United States. We are this very uniquely religious country. We talk about ourselves being, uh, you know, a, a, an, um, an exceptional nation. This is a thing that really makes us exceptional, right? Um, so here we are in 1844, full of this fervor, and the appointed thing doesn't happen. Joseph Smith is shot. All right, so the, the um, uh, Church of Latter-day Saints begins its westward trek, right? And, and all of this is happening at the same time. And you get religions coming out of the foment of what didn't happen, um, which is interesting, right? Because you would think that um, a, a failed prophecy, people would want to forget it. They would want to do like 
Harold Camping. Remember that guy? He's he came out. I think it was a decade ago. It's like the, the day is just around the corner. Rapture's right around the corner. Uh, he said the appointed day. It came and went. And you know his church is like okay, dust it under the rug and and take the old man off, retire him, right? Because we can't have that. We can't do that to our um, people. But at the same time, failed prophecy seems to have an even greater impact on history. So what's going to happen, I wonder, when the prophecies fail, when the trans kids are not all right, when um, mm. prominent trans kids like Jazz Jennings are having visible issues and in decline. What's going to happen um, when, I, I, and I, I don't wish anything ill here, but I'm just going to say when Elliot Page, all right, maybe has early onset Alzheimer's as a result of an early hysterectomy, okay, the failed prophecies, what's going to happen then? Um, and again, not to be a prophet, but one of the things that will happen, of course, is that we'll take the blame. Right, because we, we were the non-believers. Right. We 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 destroyed these people with our non-belief. Yeah. Well, and that's already happening, but I think it's going to happen a lot more. And this is where I'm going to say something really grim. It has to do with suicide, right? Because um, the pressure, the threat of suicide, has been used to pressure a whole lot of people into supporting. Um, gender ideology, you know, the would you rather have a dead daughter or a, a live son, right? And yes. and we've been sold these myths about how transition is the only alternative to suicide. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that I've chosen to die on this hill um, and that, I, that I'm willing to be so un, un, outspoken even at the risk of my career and livelihood and everything is because suicide is suicide prevention is ultimately my job and there are things being done in the suicide excuse me there are things being done in the name of suicide prevention right now that are abhorrent and that will have the opposite effect um i i oppose gender ideology because i can do the math i'm a logical person and i can put two and two together so i can see that you know many people can have and will survive rough adolescences, survive identity crises, um, survive puberty, survive trends, outlive trends. And that, you know, for adolescents, um, the, the future is unwritten. You know, um, it's, there's, there's a lot of reasons why adolescents express suicidal ideation. There's a lot of ex reasons why adolescents are currently expressing suicidal ideation regarding gender stuff. I'm not going to get into those reasons here. I've articulated them elsewhere, and I will continue to do so. Mm -hmm. um, but what's far more worrisome is the long-term suicide risk of these kids who go through these medical procedures. Because you're essentially increasing suicide risk factors and taking away suicide protective factors. So protective factors like having a family, right? Uh, there are people who struggle with depression severely but would never do anything because they wouldn't hurt their family. So what happens when you take away people's sexual and reproductive abilities? You take away their ability to have their own biological children. You also decrease their likelihood of finding a partner 
okay? So responsibility to loved ones, having loved ones at all, you know, that's a huge protective factor that we're taking away from people, okay? Um, chronic pain is a huge risk factor. Disability is a huge risk factor for suicide. We're inducing iatrogenic harm. We're inducing chronic pain and disability if you look at the consequences of these cross-sex hormones and surgeries on the body. And we're also you know, enabling people to maintain habits of poor mental hygiene um, and maintain really dysfunctional ways of thinking and feeling, all while clinging to the hope that transitioning is going to solve their problems, going to make their psychological distress go away. So they're spending years of their lives cultivating terrible mental habits, the mental habits that keep people depressed and anxious, right? And they don't feel like they mm -hmm. have any responsibility to do anything about it. They're not getting therapy. You know, if they are, they're getting quote unquote gender therapy, um, which is not real therapy, right? And and then they're pinning all their hopes on, on this uh, idealized self-image, on this idealized future of how their life is going to magically transform once they get enough affirmation, once they get enough surgery, once they get enough whatever, right? So that that sets people up to be in an extremely precarious position when that all comes crashing down, when it doesn't go as they'd hoped. And then they're just left with themselves and they're left with the wreckage. They're left with everything they had before they went through this medical stuff. And now they're, they're also dealing with transition, regret, pain, disability, CPTSD related to transing. So whether these people ever actually identify as detransitioners or not, the the population of people who are going to have some level of regret about having mm -hmm. done the whole trans thing, whatever that means for them, is at extremely high risk of suicide long term. <laughs> and I haven't even mm -hmm. articulated all, all of the factors. So and and but the the little bit of data that we do have backs this up, you know, the the if you look at the long term 20 30 years down the line, risk of suicide like 19 times higher, right? So right. what's going to happen when the suicides start is I mean there are already suicides, but you know, I don't think we've really seen the exponential wave of suicides following um is you know, what stories are going to be told about these people for whom the real reason, I mean, and the reasons are complex. And to me, it's almost sacrilegious to tell a story about someone else's death. You know, that's, it, it violates my sense of sanctity mm -hmm. and respect yeah. for human dignity and life. But obviously the reasons are complex, but, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of people who, um, attempt suicide or complete it for so many reasons, many of which have to do with the harms of quote unquote gender affirming care. Uh, but, but what stories are going to be told about those deaths? Mm -hmm. um, you know, like you say, is it going to be that we're blamed, uh, you know, that, that because we didn't support them enough, right? <laughs> and, right. and it's going to be so tragic. Um, spectral harm. Right. That's something that spectral. came up in the witch trials. Right. Spectral harm. That is, uh, um, I, I don't know how familiar you are with, say, the Salem witch trials, but one of the keys uh, to a good witch trial is that you bring out children who perform the trauma of the harm that the witch is doing to them by calling on the devil. Oh, I'm so afflicted by the demons right now. 
Uh, and that's mm. what actually took place in a courtroom. Um, that's where we get mm. the term spectral mm. evidence, right? And and what is what is the harm that J.K. Rowling done has done to the trans child? It's spectral harm, right? It's not any mm. actual harm. It's uh, uh, your bad intentions have caused an energy disturbance in the force and you failed to clap for Tinkerbell and, and now, you know, um, so, mm. so it, there's a certain sense and we're going to take the blame. Yes. I, I don't know how effective that will be. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I keep thinking of some of the more sad stories of early Catholic saints, right? Like self-harm could be sanctified and it has been before. Um, there, there's history for you. Um, and as a matter of fact, I just recently, I'm only at the beginning of looking into this, but I looked into the flagellate cults. I asked you about this a long time ago in a DM, uh, because, uh, the Catholic church in the middle ages was the closest thing to a mental health system that people had in Europe. And the Catholic church, you know, kind of let itself get swept up in these, events these flagellant cults um and i was surprised to find out actually they had a middle class origin they're not the poor people doing this no this is the burgers right that this the, the the city men who are sort of uh, at the center of this there's a new class in europe and it, it's having a really hard time with the new economy of money and capital, right? It's very runs very contrary to Catholic values, and that ends up uh, causing pogroms against the Jews who loan money, right? And then one of the three forms of the flagellant that appears a year later in the same town where this event has happened, this pogrom, uh, one of those flagellants is portrayed as the usurer, i.e., the Jew, right? being whipped and therefore cleansed of sin. Um, but, you know, I, I was surprised. A middle-class phenomenon, it turns out. Um, Self-harm can be kind of a thing that we do when we don't have a whole lot of challenges. Um, and isn't that interesting? It, it, does that resonate that, that self-harm seems to be, I guess, an artifact of modernity and safety or something? Hmm. Interesting hypothesis that, that like we don't have enough natural pain and suffering to fight against or, or something. Is that kind of where you're going with that? I mean, I guess what I can relate that to yes. is um, a, a friend of mine who's very um, blunt and ostentatious uh, once said that uh, the cure for one of my problems, and I can't remember what my health problem was at the time, but that I, I might consider contracting a parasite. <laughs> um, and the logic goes that, uh, you know, one of the reasons for autoimmune disorders, which I, I don't have a diagnosed autoimmune, well, I don't know if POTS is considered a, anyway, my point is that, um, you know, we co-evolved to be constantly fighting off parasites and bacteria and viruses, right? And, and that our modern environment is so clean and sanitized that some people believe that um, we actually get autoimmune disorders because our immune systems don't have enough to fight against. Um, and, you know, I do think that 
there is a certain amount of hardship that we need some culturally sanctioned, maybe even ritualized ways of embracing and dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking earlier about the necessity of rites of passage and how those are missing and how, you know, the fact that we don't have rites of passage in our society kind of creates this void where transitioning then becomes this rite of passage. But also if you look at rites of passage and some of those kind of traditional aspects that that cultures and religions have had over time, there's, um, I wouldn't say like self-harm, but some kind of austerity to suffer through, whether that's a sweat lodge, fasting, um, or engaging in some other kind of ceremonial restriction, doing without or suffering through hardship. Um, meditating in a, or, um, excuse me, uh, I'm just thinking of like, um, even like the Wim Hof rituals, the ice baths, you know, I think that there's a role that austerity and suffering and hardship play in life and that there is an important kind of developmental task in, when it comes to self-cultivation in actively working with and, and embracing that, you know, and I think that having, um, you know, even extreme fitness challenges like running a marathon can serve that purpose for some people or, you know, doing other kinds of challenges that involve going without. Um, and I could see, I could see something worth exploring there, um, maybe for, for another person or at another time about, um, you know, mm -hmm. what, what needs self-harm as fulfilling. I mean, well, there is a whole other conversation about self-harm that we could have from a therapeutic angle, but I think we've covered so much ground for today. So oh, yeah. I'm going to work on wrapping it up. So Matt Osborne, you are on Twitter at Polymology Fix. And yes. your website is polemology.net, which is which redirects to your Substack, if I recall correctly. Is that right? Yes, that is my Substack. Yes, and also I write about the gender politics at thedistancemag.com. Okay, is that uh, something that you share with other people, or is that a, just your own project? That that is actually a, a publication of the LGB Union. Um, and I am uh, a, a basically uh, I set it up for them and I am publishing on all of these sort of historical topics there, uh, along with a co-author, um, Donovan Cleckley, who you may follow on Twitter, uh, who covers literature and literary historiography. I cover history and historiography. And together we try to untangle as much as we can about the, uh, uh, the ideas at the uh, source origins of gender and to talk about historical antecedents. So um, that's uh, something you can check out if you want to. Um, and I prefer, uh, if, if I could have my druthers, I would never write about gender again. I would just write about conflict at polemology.net. Yes. Great. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. 
Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I am your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.